A dream is a wish your heart makes. I'm living the dream. It's a dream come true. I have a dream. These are all sayings that are common in our culture. We have either said them or heard them on various occasions. Because in our life, we know that dreams do connect us to things that are not actually here, but maybe things that we want to be here, or maybe things that we do not ever want to see. Sometimes you have dreams and they're very sweet and you wish you would never wake up from them. Other times you have dreams that are nightmares and you can't wake up quickly enough. Sometimes you're in the midst of an experience, whether good or bad, and it feels like a dream to you. Perhaps you even wish it were a dream and that it weren't so real. But the sermon today is not about dreams. It is about the God who revealed himself in a dream to a man very much like you. An ordinary person in the world that was walking before the face of God, trying to sort through the issues of his life, trying to make sense of who he was and what he was supposed to do in the world. He's very much like you. What if I were to tell you a story about a young man who was hated by his older brother and who was sent by his father and mother on a mission to seek and find a wife. Who do you think I would be talking about? If we narrowed the scope to the stories in the Bible, then there are only a few possibilities, and you might think of any number of people. Perhaps Joseph would be a stretch, but maybe Joseph. Or maybe if you've been following along in the story or in the series that we're doing this year, walking through the Bible and looking at the promises of God, some of you would say, this must be about Jacob. It must be about Jacob. And you would both be right and wrong. The story is about Jesus. It's about Jesus who was sent by his father and mother across the world to a faraway place to find a bride. But we just read a story that doesn't mention Jesus. There's nothing about Jesus in this story, is there? Or is there? What I want us to do today is to read the story in two different ways. I want you to think of this story in the way that you think of the Lord's Supper. When you think of the Lord's Supper and you look at the table even now, you see bread and wine sitting on the table. But at some point in the liturgy of this service, we will not simply call that bread and wine. We will call it body and blood of Christ. Why? Because at some point, something changes. The way we think and the way we feel and the way we talk about things changes. The Holy Spirit does his work to reveal mysteries to us. And so as we think about this story in Genesis 28, think of it as the bread and wine of the Old Testament. And then later, we will look for the body and blood of the New Testament. Or to put it in very simple terms, I want us to look at it this way. In the first part of this sermon, I'm going to tell you about earthly things. And then towards the end, I'm going to tell you about heavenly things. 
And let's see what the Holy Spirit does with us as we make our way through this story. In the context of this story, we meet Jacob, who was sent by his father and mother to find a wife in a faraway country. That's the immediate context, and it seems innocent enough. But if you dig a little deeper, you realize that this mission to find a wife, at least in the case of Jacob, was a ruse. It was a guise. It was a deceit, a story concocted by his mother, Rebecca. Why? Because if you go back far enough, you see that there's conflict between Jacob and his brother Esau, and Esau hates Jacob and is jealous of him and wants to kill him. In fact, he is plotting to kill him as soon as their father dies. Jacob's father and mother know this. And rather than live through another Cain and Abel episode, they decide what they will do is take Jacob, the younger brother, and send him away to get him out of danger, but also to help him find a wife. And we know that Jacob wasn't simply going on mission to find a wife because later on when Jacob reflects back on this experience, he says about this experience, when I left my home and I went across this wasteland to come to where I am now, I only had a staff in my hand, which indicates that he wasn't just going in search of a wife. He was fleeing danger to save his life. After all, what kind of a man worth his salt is going to go out looking for a wife with only a staff in his hand? How bold and audacious would you have to be to go up to a father and say to that father, I only have a staff but I would like to take one of your daughters as my wife. No father worth his salt would say, that's great, have your pick. So we know that what Jacob is doing here is fleeing for his life. There's more at stake than just looking for a wife. Jacob's father and mother are concerned about him, and they want to give Esau a chance to cool off, give Jacob a chance to get life sorted out, and perhaps come home with a wife. And so Jacob embarks on a 550-mile journey with only a staff in his hand. What that should also tell you is that he is leaving home in haste. He didn't take time to pack. He didn't grab a bag. He didn't get any food. He took off because his life was at stake. Now, who is this man, Jacob, that we're exploring here today? Jacob comes from the chosen family, a family that was elected by God's grace to do amazing things in the world. He is the grandson of Abraham. He is the son of Isaac, the promised child that Abraham received back from the dead, so to speak. He comes from a long history of men who have interacted with God and walked by faith, and yet somehow some of that was lost on Jacob. Jacob comes into the world as a kind of cheater. He comes into the world as a cheater, and through the course of his life practicing deceit, he now finds himself as a fugitive, a wanderer on the earth, a man displaced in the world. He's walking in the footsteps of his father Abraham, but he's walking in those steps in reverse. He's going the opposite direction that Abraham traveled when he came to the promised land. This man, Jacob, is going away from the promised land, back to Haran. What does this mean? 
Well, in terms of storytelling, it has the look and feel that this story is starting to unravel a little bit, that maybe the story is experiencing a setback or a reversal. Jacob is a man who is caught between worlds in more ways than one. Up until now, his place was at home. He loved to be in the kitchen. He loved to cook. He loved to work around the house. He loved to be with his mother. Esau was the exact opposite. But now, Jacob finds himself living the kind of life that Esau lived. Out in the wilderness. Out alone. Away from everyone. And all of this has brought him to a dark place. When the story tells us that the sun set and darkness came, it's not just telling us the time of day. It's painting for us a picture of what's happening in the life of Jacob. Darkness has descended upon him as he travels between these worlds. He's so worn out and weary that he lay on the ground out in the open, fully exposed to the elements. He's so weary and tired, wiped out from his journeys, that he picks up a stone and uses that stone as a pillow. Now, I like a firm pillow as much as anyone. But this one is rock hard, which indicates that this guy is completely wiped out. Jacob is in a dark place. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that since God has a special place and a plan and a purpose for Jacob's life, God has been picking a fight with Jacob since before he was born. And if you doubt the truth of that, go back and read the full story of Jacob's life and you will see it. That Jacob came into the world grasping at his brother's heel. And from infancy on, he has been cheating to win. But all of that is about to change. And it's going to change because, as the scholar says, the call of God is not only a call to well-being... It may be a call to strife and dispute with God. Jacob is in a fight with God that he will lose again and again and again. And he will learn through this school of hard knocks that it is only by losing that he will win. And so God comes to meet him in the darkness where there is nowhere to run or hide. You read the story of Jacob and you see that the most important things that happen in his life happen at night, in the darkness, when he is alone with his thoughts, wrestling with his conscience, pondering his existence, trying to make sense of his life. Now, I know that some of us, some of you can relate to that in more ways than one. And so let me say that if you ever find yourself in darkness and you feel like darkness is your only friend, try to remember that God never sleeps or slumbers. Try to remember that even the darkness is as light to the Lord. Try to remember that God will meet you in your lowest and your loneliest moments. We see him do this a time and time again, and we see it once again in the life of Jacob. It was in the darkness of the night 
that God drew near to Jacob. And what did he do? He opened the eyes of his heart and shone the light of his glory into the heart and soul of Jacob. He revealed himself to Jacob when all other lights were out, when no one else was around, God drew near. And this reminds Jacob once again that God is present. He's an ever-present help. He's not far from any one of us. He draws near if and when he wants, whenever he wants. And so imagine God drawing near to Jacob all of these times at night, startling him, shocking him, stunning him back to reality each and every time. Jacob will grow quite used to meeting God in the dead of night. What does God reveal in this light, in this dream, in a vision? Something very curious to us. Some of our translations say that God revealed a ladder to Jacob, a ladder that extended from heaven to earth and filled in the space in between, a ladder that was surrounded by angels going up and down beside it and upon it. It was a ladder that many translators say we see here. But scholars are quick to point out that this ladder is not a ladder. It's not what we think of as a ladder. It's not the kind of ladder a fireman uses to extend himself to get up to the top floor of a burning building. It's not the kind of ladder that you use to paint your house or to hang Christmas lights. Nor is it the kind of ladder that I saw yesterday at Scarborough Fair. That's right. Your pastor went to a Renaissance festival. Huzzah! My wife pointed out to me that there was a game there called Jacob's Ladder. And I took interest in watching what was happening with this game. Children were invited to come and play at their own risk. Parents, of course, had to pay first. But the kids could go and they had three chances to ascend this short little ladder that went from the ground to a pole wasn't a high ladder, but it was angled, and it just happened to have swivels at the end of each part of the ladder so that it would wobble and spin and turn as the kids tried to make their way up to ring a bell. I watched child after child attempt to climb this ladder. The distance was so short, but the feat was so impossible. And I say attempt because one after another, they all fell off the ladder and landed in the hay, filled with frustration and anger and tears and pleading and negotiating for just one more chance. Let me try. I know I could do it this time. To no avail. And in the night, I started thinking about that ladder. And how so many of us and so many people we know have thought of God in that way. That God comes to us and says, play at your own risk. I've extended a ladder to you. But the game is rigged. And he sets us up for failure. 
that all he wants is our money, our time, and our effort. He doesn't want us to reach the top. In fact, he doesn't even really want us. He just wants to see us fail and fall again and again and again. Have any of you ever thought of God in that way? It's a false gospel that is very common in our world. It's a false gospel that sneaks into our hearts at times. God has set me up for failure. He wants me to reach the top by my own steam, by my own efforts, by my own desire. And some of you actually believe that as many times as you fall, if you just have one more chance, you'll make it. But I want to point out to you that that is not what God revealed to Jacob. That is not the kind of ladder that God extended from heaven into the earth. He did not extend a ladder or a stairway down to the earth to say, there it is, there's your chance. I've done my part, now you do yours. See if you can make it. Climb and climb with all your might. And don't stumble and don't slip or you'll be back at the bottom. God is not playing a game of shoots and ladders with you. He's providing grace for you. He's making promises to you. And he's showing you through a vision like this that he has done everything it takes to get you back to himself. Because God is the one who comes down the ladder to meet you where you are in the darkness of the night. God is the one who meets you at the bottom to bring you all the way to the top. The gospel says you don't have to climb those steps because Christ is going to carry you all the way home. Now, Jacob didn't know that the way you do. Jacob is just left wrestling with the image of this ladder. He sees a stairway to heaven, not a wobbly rope ladder, not a crickety wooden ladder with busted rungs. No, he sees a solid and stable staircase that reaches up to heaven, that connects heaven and earth, that unites God and his people. It's a stairway that allows God to come down and his people to come up. And so after God gets Jacob's attention with this strange vision, he reiterates the promises that he has made to Abraham and Isaac. It's the same promise that he gave to the seed. In your English translation, perhaps you see the word offspring and not the word seed. That's a mistake. The word is seed in Hebrew, and it matters. And the reason it matters is because there is a theme and a story that God is telling about that seed. And from the very beginning, when God revealed the mystery of the gospel to the world, he said that the seed of the woman would come into the world and crush the head of the serpent. And God has been telling the story of that seed through the life of his people ever since. So what God is doing here is he's catechizing Jacob and confirming in Jacob either what he learned from his father and mother or what he should have learned from them. And what God is telling him is that God is the promise maker and the promise keeper. And he does it by saying, look, I'm a person 
And I'm making promises to you. And I've got the power to keep those promises. And my presence will always be with you. And he says it like this. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And what are the promises that this Lord God brings? He says, I will give you and your seed the land you sleep on and much, much more. Your dust... Your seed will be like dust spread over everything and everywhere so that all the families of the earth will be blessed. I will give. I will be with you. I will keep you. I will bring you back. I will not leave you. And he guarantees the promises with his own power by saying, I will do these things. There is nothing in this story. There is nothing in this depiction of God's communication with Jacob that says, Jacob, I'm going to do my part and you're going to do your part and together we will fulfill this. No, God is taking full responsibility and bearing the burden both for himself and for Jacob, just as he did for Abraham and Isaac. And he promises, I I am with you always, even to the end. Now, if all of this sounds familiar to you, it's either because you remember hearing these things that God spoke to Abraham, or because you remember hearing Jesus speak these same kinds of things to his disciples. Remember when Jesus gave the Great Commission, didn't he use language like this? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, make disciples of all nations. All people everywhere. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. So how does Jacob respond to this dream? He takes the dream very seriously. Not like sometimes when we have a dream and we wake up and go, Woo, that was weird. Or, wow, I wish I could get right back to sleep and finish that out. No, he wakes up and he realizes that this is significant. And the scripture says that when he awoke, he was afraid and he was awestruck. But notice that rather than firing up the marketing machine or signing a book deal or going on a conference tour or selling the rights to a movie somewhere, he simply confesses his faith And commits himself to the Lord in the darkness with reverence and awe in his heart. Our English translation says, how awesome is this place? And if we're not careful, we might read it like some valley girl from the 90s, right? But he wasn't saying it was awesome in the way we think everything is awesome. What he was saying is how dreadful is this place. How fearful How unlike anything else around me is this place? It's sacred ground. And because it was dreadful, when he confesses his faith to God, he says, truly the Lord God is in this place, and I did not know it. How dreadful is this place? Why is it dreadful? What makes it so different? What makes it so sacred? He says, This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. 
And had you been with him in that open space looking around, you wouldn't have seen a house or a gate. But if he had the eyes of faith that he did, if God had opened the eyes of your heart and illumined them the way he'd done for Jacob, you would have seen it all. And so he commits to worship and serve the Lord. Now, so far so good, right? But we should also say, so what? Because up to this point, all we have done is looked at earthly things. All we've done is looked at bread and wine on the table. All we've done is look at the surface of the story. But we need to get beneath the surface and behind the elements to see the mystery of the gospel. What are the heavenly things in this story? What does this story have to do with Jesus? That is the question that we always ask and we should always ask. As we heard earlier in the service today, when Jesus started his ministry, one day a man named Nathanael came walking up to him. And as Nathanael was drawing near, Jesus saw Nathanael and said, Behold, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. In other words, you're someone that is both like Jacob and unlike Jacob. And Nathanael says, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you while you were under the fig tree, while you were in the shade, under the darkness of the leaves, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Do you believe because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And it's with these words that Jesus transforms our reading of Genesis 28. He changes the way we understand that story. We see that it's not simply about Jacob and a ladder and a dream. We see that this is a story about God in the flesh. Jesus is unveiling for us the mystery of this story. And what we learn is that Jacob's ladder is none other than Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the one who stands both on top of the staircase in heaven and stands at the bottom of the staircase on earth. Why? Because he is the one who reconnects heaven and earth together. The one who has come to reunite, to reconcile God and man. That Jesus is the true and better Jacob who was sent by his father and mother to a faraway land to seek and to find a bride. Now, Jesus said to Nathanael, you will see greater things than these. You will see heaven opened. You are going to see the other side, the mystery of the gospel. And he did. Why? Because through the course of the life of Jesus along the way, he was hated by his brothers 
because he received the blessing from his father and they were utterly jealous of him. And he received the blessing from his father because he made himself like one of them. Along the way, he passed through deserted places and he came to a dark place where he fell asleep and woke again. Indeed, where he died and was raised to life again. Along the way, angels descended and ascended upon him. And if you think about it, you will know these stories well. It was the angels that announced the conception and the birth of Jesus. They were the ones who took care of him after his testing and trials in the wilderness. They were the ones who comforted him in Gethsemane in the dark night of his soul. They were the ones who stood ready, waiting for his word of command to rescue him from the cross and the enemies. They stood guard at the tomb and they announced his resurrection. They stood at his feet as he ascended into heaven to take his place at the right hand of the Father. The disciples of the Lord Jesus indeed saw greater things than I saw you under the fig tree. They saw the heavens opened. They saw the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. They saw God's work to bring his people back to himself. So when Jacob saw this stairway to heaven and the angels ascending and descending, although he didn't know it at the time, he certainly knows it now, but at the time he didn't realize that he saw the person and work of Jesus Christ the story of the gospel all in a flash. He caught a glimpse of the glory and the majesty of Christ. And he was right to conclude, this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I want you to know that what was a dream to him is reality to you. I've been around Christians and in ministry long enough to know that it's not uncommon for some of us to say, oh, I wish I could have a dream like Jacob had. Oh, I wish I could see what Jacob saw. But I want to tell you, truly, truly, you have seen far more than Jacob ever knew was possible. Because you have seen Jesus Christ in the flesh, crucified, raised to life, ascended to heaven. You have seen the truth of the gospel in ways that he could only dream about. And so what was a dream to him is a reality to you. The stairway is the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the word made flesh, who pitched his tent among us and dwelled with us. The house of God is the Lord Jesus Christ, whose body is the tabernacle and the temple. Who said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise, I will raise it again. Jesus is the sacred and dreadful place where God meets with his people in worship. Jesus is the gate of God. The door by whom we must enter if we wish to be saved. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by him. At the end of the first service, one of our dear friends and sisters, who is in her 90s and uses a walker to get around, came to me and said, Thank God 
I don't have to climb those steps. And I said, thank God none of us have to climb those steps. Because however many there are, however high they reach, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who carries us all the way home. One night, Jesus was meeting with a man who was very much like Nicodemus, like, like Jacob. It was a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night with some questions. And in their conversation, Jesus said to Nicodemus, No one has ever ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And he must be lifted up on the cross between heaven and earth so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Why? Because this is how God shows his love for the world. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe? Do you believe in the one who laid down his life on the earth to lift you up into heaven? Do you believe the good news that Jesus Christ came and gave his life for you? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us pray.